0: Today's episode is sponsored by MacLays Games, with their latest creation, Sea of Nadia. In this game, you must take to the unforgiving seas in your ship, searching out and collecting resources in order to open up treasures and gather as many coins as you can. It's a two-to-four player game with a unique dice-assigning pickup and delivery mechanism that offers a number of tough and incredibly enjoyable decisions. On top of that, Sea of Nadia introduces a complementary technology for backers. It has augmented reality rules which will help you learn the game in a new and easier way. So that's Sea of Nadia. Check it out on Kickstarter right now.
1: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at QMLogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. A proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up,
0: my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about games that last. What does it look like to create a game, to create mechanisms, create a theme, a world, a universe, create some systems that are going to be here for the long haul, that are going to be replayable, that are going to have uh, lots of options to do different things as you go along? And we're talking to Brad Towton from Level 99 Games. Brad, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Gabe. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, man, really excited to talk to you about this particular topic. You have so many games in your lineup as as a publisher and then as a designer that you've worked on that just lend themselves to basically being endlessly expandable and and just offer so many cool angles for play and just year after year after year. And so I'm really uh, excited just to kind of understand how do you design these games? What does it look like to publish these kinds of games? But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, well, I am, uh, I mean, I I guess I'm a full-timer. I'm an industry, uh, I guess a veteran at this point, because Level 99 Games is coming up on its 10th anniversary this year in 2020, in November. So uh, I feel like a bit of an old man now, but I got started back uh, around the time of the 2008 recession. Um, I got into, I'd always been doing board game design, but um, at that point, I was a junior programmer on my programming team. I got laid off. I you know, was uh, looking for work to do. I started making some apps and then the Kickstarter buzz came along and I was working from home, working for myself. And I said, well, Hey, uh, you know, if TMG can put out a game, I can put out a game. And so I took the game I was working on at that time, which was the very first Battlecon game. And I put it up on Kickstarter and the rest from there is history. We've run about 22 projects since then. And, uh, there's, um, yeah, just, uh, it's been a wild ride. We've got a lot of, uh, met a lot of cool fans, built a lot of really fun stuff, and got a great team that I can depend on. It's uh, it's really cool. It's a really cool industry to be in, and I enjoy it quite a lot.
0: Awesome. And congrats on, you know, 10 years. That's no small task. And uh, also starting up during a recession, I think, you know, it looks like uh, there's gonna be a lot of people with the same opportunity here uh, coming up, you know, about 15 minutes from now, <laughs> based on the way the world is. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, indeed. It's kind of funny. I was actually planning on going full time in the industry uh, in June 2020. Like I've had that kind of marked in my calendar for a while that uh, I would be able to walk away from um, teaching and you know still teach and do some things on the side. But now going into full time game design, game publishing, you know, podcasts and things like that. And then uh, then the world changed. And so my wife actually talked to me the other day. She's like, now we are we still doing this? Like, (laughs) you (laughs) about this? and it's like, yeah, I think so. I'm I'm still planning on it. The numbers still look pretty good. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but.
2: Well, that's really cool. I wish you good luck with it. And for me, it (laughs) took, it took a few years before I was able to really pay myself uh, a salary on it. And, uh, but I would do always say is game design is, is my hobby. Publishing is what pays the bills. Uh, So my job is to be a game publisher. My hobby is to be a game designer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good, Way to look at it. All right, well, let's jump into the topic. Okay, first of all, let's, let's get a good little like working definition. What does it even mean to design games that last? Like, what is a game that lasts?
2: Well, I would say it's a game that after you know, hundreds and hundreds of plays, after years, it's a game that you can come back to and still feel good about playing. You know, a lot of games, they really do show their age. They uh, either will be, you know, just, uh, outclassed by modern versions of the game, um, by newer by newer games, or um, they just won't uh, age very well. Once you've played it a couple times, you come back to it and you're like, oh, well, I know everything that this game does. It doesn't hold any surprises or any secrets for me anymore. And so I think those are the two sort of mechanics that you really have to embody to make a game that lasts. You have to create a game that is going to continue to reveal new secrets, new discoveries for the player game after game after game. And you have to create a game that is so unique and standing alone that it's not going to be outclassed by something that comes a few years later. And man, there are, there's there's a lot that goes into it. It's, it's a big job to design a game that's going to uh, pass both of those tests.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And you even hear reviewers talk about, you know, newer games as they come out and they'll say, oh, this is a this game kills this o- older game, right? This is a killer of this one. Like, don't play this older one anymore. This is a better version of it. It's a better way to play it. It's got more interesting choices and mechanisms, whatever. And so to design a game where that doesn't happen or at least doesn't happen, you know, in a lot uh, is a very, very challenging thing. What are some of the examples, other than your games, I want to talk about your games in just a minute, but other than your games, what are some examples of games that have, uh, are doing this really well?
2: Well, I think that the, you know, for me, I'm a really big video gamer, and so I have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, experience in, in playing video games. And if I can draw from there, um, the Mario games are a really great example of this, where the game is so tight, so well done. People are still playing the original Super Mario Brothers, and it's been over 40 years now, almost, since that came out. Um, I guess a little less than 40, but the, um, you know, another great example is actually League of legends, um, this genre that there's so many MOBA games out there. And yet this is a game that continues to reinvent itself over and over and over again and remain the king of the genre for years and years. So, so those are some examples that I would, I would put forward, um, in that, in that space.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think Fortnite is another one from the video game world that there are so many, you know, Royale games now, Battle Royale games, and yet that's still the one that, that people continue to flock to.
2: Yeah, Twilight Imperium would be a great example from your board game space. I mean, many games have tried to do, uh, tried to create the kind of epic atmosphere and the depth of conflict and consequence that that game creates. But no, nobody really talks about any other game except Twilight Imperium in that space. And it's been the same Ever since it came out,
0: yeah, that's a good one. I think Dominion is another one. There have been, you know, basically a million deck builders that have come out since Dominion, but yet still people continue to play Dominion. More expansions continue to come out. Like it's still offering new and interesting ways uh, to play. And I think that's uh, another one as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's, these are all these are all great. So there's a lot of games that yeah that that can hang on in spite of of everything. I think that um, Dominion is is in an interesting place too because there. Are, the space that it created, you know, that originally created is quite so saturated. Um, but, you know, we can take another example, like uh, risk legacy was kind of the, the hot game, right. Of the, when it came out and it was all about the, the legacy mechanics and risk legacy is still pretty good, but it's been outclassed by the future games that came out after it. Pandemic legacy. And uh, to some extent, betrayal legacy. Um, I think both did the same thing a little bit better.
0: Yeah, another one. Let me ask you about this: Is pandemic considered in this category? Because I mean, you know, it came out I think in way, I think the same year Dominion did. Pretty good year for games. And so, is it in this category? Because Matt Leacock, I mean, he come literally comes out with a new one every single year now, and it just changes the mechanisms a little bit, changes the theme a little bit. Does that count?
2: I uh, I I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that is very subjective, right? You know, we're talking about and we're, we're 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 completely in the realm of opinions when we talk about what games are still great years later. And some things, you know, are definitive, right? Like, we still know that, um, you know, that these games are selling, you know, millions of copies a year. But uh, but I don't know so much about the original Pandemic. I would imagine that it's a classic because you can still get it after these many years, still on Target shelves after all this time. So, yeah, I would probably say that the original Pandemic is a classic. But there is, uh, there's something to it too, right? Like, the original Ticket to Ride is a classic, but you don't really... Think of, say, I don't know, like the latest expansion to Ticket to Ride as falling into that category. It might keep it fresh for people, but it doesn't really, um, you know, the expansions are not for the new players, Does that make sense. So I think that there's something to say that the game has to appeal to the ground level player years and years later. Uh, Not just through expansions appealing to its existing fans.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And now why is this worth talking about? Why why are we devoting an entire episode of this podcast to this particular topic? Why do you think it's important?
2: Well, I think that it is a big deal because when we look, you know, back on, on time, you know, we've got a limited amount of time here and we're gonna be designing games for, for so many years, and yet there are games that are on the shelves, you know, things like life, Monopoly. You know, uh, games that have been around so many years that have made such a difference uh, to, to, you know, to so many people. Basically, what's the legacy of the game that I'm creating? You know, and, and, and when we look at game design, um, I would say I consider myself, and I think a lot of designers consider themselves to be artists to some degree. You know, we're building something that is that is unique and original and is to some extent a work of art. And how do we build something that's going to stand the test of time, that's going to be remembered, that is, um, yeah, that's going to become a truly great game, um, and not just a, you know, a spur of the moment cult of the new hit.
0: Definitely. Now, switching over to your games, you know, there's Pixel Tactics, Battlecon, Exceed, Millennium Blades, all of these kind of lend themselves to being able to be played indefinitely, you know, you can add lots of uh, really cool things to the world. They offer lots of uh, opportunities for players to kind of really grow in, in kind of the depth of understanding of the game. It's, I love uh, your, your fighting games because it's one of those like two people who never played it before can sit down and play it and have fun, but then two other people who've been playing it for five years can sit down and it's a totally different experience, but it's the same game. And I think it's a really cool uh, thing that you've you pulled off with you know BattleCon and, and these other games that you, you've worked on. And so tell me about your games in particular, the, the things that you're really proud of, the things that really stand out as far as standing the test of time?
2: Well, I would say that uh, you've really hit it on on the head. You know, a game that can give you a great experience the first time you sit down and then also uh, renew that great experience the 100th time you sit down, that is really what we strive for. And at Level 99 Games, we do a lot of versions of a game. We do a lot of playtesting. We do a lot of prototypes you know, it took us about 20 versions to make BattleCon, it took about twenty versions to make Millennium Blades. And when I say a version, I'm not talking about we tweak a few cards. You know, that's a minor version. That's like, you know, 5.1 or 5.2. When we go to from version five to version six, we basically retool the mechanics of an entire game and make a, a new game uh, with the best of what we had before. And so it's a this process of continual refinement and fearless, somewhat ruthless cutting of anything that we don't perceive as being uh, really great for the final game.
0: All right, so let's get into kind of how you do this. Is it something you're thinking about on the front end before you really even start a game design and thinking, okay, how do I make, how do I design a game that lasts for 10 years? Like, is that something you're thinking about or does it just kind of work out that way?
2: So with the original early designs like BattleCon, um, I think that it's, it, the, the game came first. You know, we were like, oh, this is a cool concept for a game. We connect two cards, they have this stat matrix that interacts with other cards. You know, part of the original idea of um, of BattleCon was to take those old Lost Worlds battle books and turn them into a fluid card mechanic system. So so that was kind of the core conceit of the game, was to make this cool combat system that was deterministic. Now, when we got to a game like Exceed years and years later we said, you know, we want to build this game specifically with the idea of being expandable, of being able to plug in new mechanics, of being able to um, to move these particular levers so that the fundamental gameplay can change within acceptable parameters, and it won't kill the past expansions either. Uh, and so that game, we engineered a lot more towards the future.
0: Gotcha. So how do you do that? Like, when you're really thinking through early design prototypes and you're wanting to make sure, okay, we want to be able to plug in new characters, new fighters, new, you know, mechanisms, things like that. Like, how does that work? Like if, if I'm a, if I'm a new designer and I'm really just trying to understand this, like talk to me in this kind of like one-on-one class way of like, how do you do this from your design process perspective?
2: Okay. So it's a, it's a lot of math and the game, the good, the, the core system really starts with a matrix. I mean, when you look at game theory and you see, um, kind of the simple problems of game theory, um, how players will choose strategies and those strategies interact, and then the interaction of those two strategies kicks us into another matrix with another set of strategies that each player can select. And the idea is that you're going to create a tight uh, matrix, you know, this multidimensional matrix that is going to create interesting decisions over and over and over again for the players. And so in Battlecon and Exceed. That matrix is this, um, you know, power, speed, guard, and range matrix, where the you know the two-dimensional version is: Am I going to go with power or speed? You know, speed is important to go first, and to the point where how much power can I cash out? To the point where speed isn't important anymore, I can guard through attacks, and uh, and so that kind of dynamic circle on both ends creates one dimension, and then. Whenever we do these attacks, we're going to change our positioning, and that triggers the range, which creates the third dimension of the matrix. And so each play that we make, we are changing our game state to kick us into another matrix for another round of decisions, which can uh, which have different outcomes and different weights. And so even if you've played 100 games of this, you are very likely that after two or three beats, you will be put in a position where you've never seen this particular board state before. And um, anyway, so it takes a lot of work and a lot of versions to find, to build that matrix, but also to find what particular numbers and what particular interactions will will trigger positive feedback for both players.
0: Gotcha. Now, I remember you came on the show almost two years ago to the day, honestly, and one of the things that you talked about on that previous episode was whenever you're designing a fighting game, a dueling game that you design a very generic very vanilla system first and make sure that's good and that's fun and provides interesting choices and then you start changing things up and adding new variables and new mechanisms new new ways that characters work so is that something that also plays into these other not only you know these fighting games but other games in general when you're trying to make something that's going to last and is you know uh, easy to expand is create that core first and and make sure it's good and then kind of go out from there
2: Absolutely. I mean, I love asymmetric games and I love different player powers and seeing how those player powers interact with one another. And you you can't start from player powers. You have to play the vanilla game. You have to play with very simple characters that are just going to sort of outline on the ground where your matrix is. And once you have that that parameter set, you understand what the limits are of the system, what it can and can't deal with. And then you start building yourself levers. Well, I can modify the character's personal abilities. I'll be able to modify the cards that are in their decks. I'll be able to modify these different modifiers for their power and speed and range and so forth. And the interaction of all of those things is going to give me a unique character experience. But that is definitely step two. And it only comes after the game is is complete. And so... You can't look at a game and say, oh, well, it'll be fun once we put characters into it. Doesn't ever work that way. The game has to be fun first when you're just playing you know, Ryu versus Ken and they're exactly identical. And then you can go and make all of the crazy characters, you know, the, the Dalsims and the Chun-Lis and the Blancas. And you can test the limits of your system, but you have to start with that core first. And that core has to be really engaging. You have to get that 1v1 symmetric game to the point where people say as soon as they are done playing they're saying i want to play again right now let's rematch and once you reach that point then you know you get to do you get to start the real fun of content creation
0: yeah and i think this is something a lot of new designers miss and they, they don't understand is that start with the vanilla start with the common you know everybody's the same all powers are the same all actions are the same And then, once that's really good, then start adding other things. I feel like a lot of designers start off trying to design Twilight Imperium and all these different factions and races and all these different abilities and things like that. And then the issue is one, it's overwhelming. Goodness gracious. Like to try to design Twilight Imperium from the outside in versus the inside out is just ridiculously, just a crazy Mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's really like design design chess, right? Or checkers, right? Create a game that both sides have the exact same uh, abilities and, and Powers and people and all these things, and then start designing 3D chess, right? And now we're adding new new uh, pieces and they can move in different directions, things like that. I think you know, yeah. design that core first and then move out from there, because uh, a lot yeah. of people they don't they don't understand that. And then if the game breaks or it doesn't work, it's very difficult to understand why. Because it, is it the game? Is it the core? Or is it this like really random ability that you gave this faction and it's just totally broken and it makes the game not
2: fun? You need to be able to to know that objectively. Is it the changes I made to the system, or is it the changes I made to the individual characters? But I would uh, follow up by saying there's a second half to making something that'll that'll last, and that is the unique content, right? You know, the game there are, there are a few classics, or at least games people would call classics, that have very strong license themes. But almost all the games we talked about, you know, whether we were talking about Mario or Twilight Imperium, they're games that have shipped with their own unique universe like right? games that the universe was created for the game the world was created for the game to um to explain the mechanics and the systems that were in that game and so building a robust world and thematics that can keep the game engaging is the other half of the battle
0: yeah i think that's a great point that actually reminds me of time stories which if time stories had stopped after the third or fourth expansion, I think it would still be my favorite game, but the more they continue it just kind of fell off, but it's such a great system that is so just endlessly expandable to do different stories, different time periods, different mechanisms you can add to the game because the common core, which is pretty generic, like the icons are very simple. The board is just a big white board with you know gray frames. I mean, it's very, very vanilla, but it offers up so many different opportunities to do totally different things. I think that's another good example to kind of look at and say, okay, here's a system that then can just be played forever.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Seventh Continent is another game that uh, that gave me that same vibe where there's there's this hugely robust core system at the, at the center of it and so much content around it that um, you can't really even imagine discovering it all. And yet everything flows naturally from the core mechanic of the game. It all ties back to the center uh, and uh, does that in a really effective way.
0: Yeah. All right. So following up on the whole universe idea, what are some things you're thinking about as a designer and as a publisher when you're kind of creating a world, creating a universe that's going to, you know, fit and integrate into these systems or these mechanisms? Kind of talk to me about the universe angle.
2: Yeah. So when we're building a world and trying to come up with what the characters in a game are going to be, what these asymmetric sides are going to be, what we really want to think about is how are we going to immediately convey to the player what this side or faction or character is all about, and also what is what what is the player going to latch onto that's going to help them make that decision about the first character they play? You know, I know you've you know probably sat at a fighting game screen, and your friend says, "Well, who should I play first? And you're like, "Oh, I don't know, just pick random," and you have to go through the whole roster just to find a character that you like. So um, so I think it's it's really important that you make your characters very monolithic, very uh, almost stereotypical on the surface level so that players can relate to them and understand what they're all about. You know, and this is, is pretty true in the races in, in a game like uh, we we're saying like Twilight Imperium, um, or Fighters in Street Fighter, you know, you can look at these characters, you can tell what they're about. You know, they all seem stretchy and the, the Hakan, you know, have spice trading and so they're all rich. It's pretty straightforward to explain these characters in one sentence so i guess what i'd say is is you want to make sure that you're building a world that people can immediately relate to and then once they get below the surface that's when you want to mix things up and i've seen a lot of designers come at it from the other angle where they try to make a game or characters that are so completely alien that they're not like anything else that's ever existed and it's difficult for players to sit down to a game like that i'm reminded of uh sidereal confluence for example in this sense um and uh you know Chaosmos is another good example these are great games but the characters are so like it's difficult to understand you know they are these, these aliens are so alien that it's tough to to get involved in the world
0: gotcha makes a lot of sense and then when you're working on it from the mechanism side Tell me what you're thinking. You talked about, you know, a lot of math and you're really trying to figure things out from the math level in, and make it sure it all integrates and, and you know, kind of works together. But what else as far as the mechanism side of things, just to, to make sure that this is going to be a game that can be played for a long time?
2: Well, you know, we do a lot of testing and in I come from a computer science background. And so I think it's really useful to be able to create, you know, simple closed tests that can be run on a game. You know, we don't want to try and play 110 battlecon fighters against each other in a round robin match 10 times each to make sure that the game is balanced you know we want to be able to have a chart somewhere that tells us like hey if this character has you know three plus two powers um, then they probably need to have you know lower speed on average as a curve so we got to try to design some rules try to design some heuristics and um, make some simple uh, types of tests so you know, we pick about four characters that stretch the limits of a system that that define each of those parameters. This guy has got crazy range. This guy has got crazy speed. And this girl hits like a truck. And this other character over here has like unlimited defense. And you want to play your character against each of those extremes. And as long as they can perform reliably against those extremes, you know that they kind of fall somewhere in the middle where they're not going to abuse the system too much. And if they can, you know, very reliably beat one side of that curve or the other, or they very reliably lose to one side of that curve and the other, then you know the character has some weaknesses that are going to be present in all their matchups against those those sorts of archetypes. So this works when you're doing a lot of characters. It's not especially useful when you're just doing like six factions in a game. But when you just have six factions, you can just play games and balance them. So um I guess that's that. But when we work on Exceed, you know, a game where we're coming out with about thirty fighters a year, um, it makes sense to only test against the extremes of the system.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So looking back at the four games I mentioned earlier, Pixel Tactics, BattleCon, Exceed, Money Blaze, what are some of the things about any of those that really stand out to you? Kind of things you're really proud of from the design or from the universe, from the world, that you can say, Okay, I was really my design brain was clicking on all cylinders here because this this really works, this really made a game to last.
2: <laughs> well, I don't like to, to, you know, speak too fondly of my own designs. I I do like the games that I that I make, uh, but I don't think that um, I think it's more it's more perspiration than inspiration for me. Um, you know, I think that with Millennium Blades we had a really great design because we built the game with the expansions in mind, and the kind of mechanic of promo cards existing within the game gave us an outlet to create proto card. Our promotional cards in real life, uh, and open the door to a lot of really cool crossovers and a lot of expandability. You know, when we started Millennium Blades and we started Exceed, we knew what the shape of an expansion would look like for those games. We were we were saying, oh, it's going to be, you know, box A or box B. You know, with Exceed, it's going to be this four-character box or this solo box. With uh, Millennium Blades, here's a 52-card expansion. It holds nine uh, bonus sets exactly. And we can build around those, those kind of ideas. And when we say, oh, we'll do a new Millennium Blades expansion, we know exactly what we're getting into. And that's really nice. With Battlecon, we didn't do this. And so Battlecon, you know, we have a few horror stories where we started on Devastation, and it was an 18-character game. And by the time we finished it, it was like 30 characters and with, you know, with six brand-new modes. And we did a lot of crazy stuff, and we didn't really realize how big of a box we were making. And that was, it's one of the most loved games. Uh, I think that the team did a really great job on it. But (laughs) we didn't understand the shape of an expansion when we started working on Battlecon And the later games, like Wanderers, Trials, Fate, that only have 10 characters, those, I think, are a better production than the original Devastation because we knew what we were doing and we knew what our limitations were going in. So, um, yeah, all that to say, like, thinking ahead about how, not only, like, what content is, but how you're going to distribute content to players is, uh, is really important too. And the sort of intellectual organization of that content.
0: Yeah. And I think this is a great point about the publishing side of things is just creating parameters just to make your life easier. If you know that every expansion is going to have 52 cards. Okay. Then that means the box size can always be the same. You know, you have all these different uh, basically filters that you can put onto the expansion or onto the next game. Uh, And you can say, okay, it has to fit inside these parameters. And if it doesn't, we're going to cut it. And it just makes your life a lot easier. Am I right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It makes things a lot easier. And it also makes things easier on the fans. One thing we really discovered with Battlecon was that when we made so many modes and put so much stuff in a box, players thought all this stuff was cool, but they didn't really know how to organize it, how to fetch the cards they needed to play a particular game. Um, And this is the kind of situation you get into a lot with um, if you've played, like, say, Arkham Horror LCG, Um, or like some of the uh, other Fantasy Flight LCGs, there's so many cards, there's so many different types of cards, and they're so detailed, it's often difficult to tell what's what and how to put it all together to actually set up a game that you want to play. And that was a a thing that our fans encountered with Devastation that we had to look forward to, you know, how are we going to create so much content in a way that is parsable for the player? How are they going to be able to understand what it is that we've actually given them How can we market it so that we're not confusing people? How can we put it on the box so that they can find their way through? And in Devastation, we include this one big sheet. And as soon as you open the box, it's like, don't panic. Here's what's in the box and how it's organized and how you get started bit by bit. And we actually did it kind of legacy style where we said, like, these guys are really advanced characters. Don't open them yet. And don't open these guys or these guys or these guys. Here's the level one basic fighters. Open those, play your first 10 games and then open pack two and then open pack three and then open pack four. And I think that that really helped that game to be, you know, so the players could actually play it.
0: Yeah. I think that is so incredibly important. You know, when somebody's trying to play your game for the first time that, you know, they put it off the shelf, they put it off the shrink, they opened up the rule book, they've, you know, trying to figure out how to play the game. But don't make it hard for them to understand where to start or where to begin. Make that as easy as possible. And I love it when games tell me, hey, this character, this is a level three character. So you don't want to play this one first. You want to play this one over here because somebody might just see that character and go, oh, man, he looks really cool. I'm going to play him. And then 20 minutes later, they hate the game. They had a terrible time. They don't understand. It's too confusing. It's too complicated. When They, they started on level three when they should have started on level one. And so I yeah. think from a publishing standpoint, just make it as easy as possible for people to get into the game.
2: Well, I think it's from a design standpoint, too. This is one of the big traps when you're trying to design a game that people are going to play hundreds of times is designing for the hundredth play. And because you as a designer have played the game a hundred times. And so you know everything about it. You know all the baseline systems. It's all very intuitive. You've grokked it. And you're still designing and you're still developing and building on new content. And things that seem straightforward and clear to you are going to be baffling to a first-time player. And so... A big part of designing a game that's going to to last is designing a game that people can play for the first time, and I mentioned that a little earlier, but it's just as important, it's more important to design a game that plays really well the first time, because everybody's going to play their first game. Only a handful of those are going to get to their hundredth game, and you have to design for both of those players so that they have a a, a great experience. And I think the hundredth game player is going to have a richer experience, but both players need to be able to complete the game and have a great time. And if the first, if the hundredth game can evoke the same great experience as the first game, then you really can achieve that goal.
0: Yeah, this is a really good point. I think it also uh, brings up playtesting as far as this as well. Because one thing I've noticed recently, I've been designing a lot of solo games, and uh, I've gotten really, really good at the games I'm designing, which makes sense. I'm the one you know playing them all the time. I understand the inner workings. And so I got to a point with one game in particular that I was winning. Basically every time. And so I started wondering, "Mm, I wonder if I've designed the game to be too easy. Maybe it's just, maybe I need to tweak some things and make it harder. And I thought, well, let me, actually, let me send out some people and get some other testers, some other blind play testing, and then see what comes back. And so I sent it out and it came back and the the people that were playing for the first time, even the fourth or fifth time, they were losing basically every single time. It's like, OK, cool, because <laughs> I, I understand the game a whole lot better than they do. And so it kind of gave me some good balance. And so I think from a playtesting standpoint, you can kind of tell me your thoughts as well. It's good to playtest with the same groups or the same people, you know, that way you get the deeper understandings, but then also always be trying it with new players. So you, you kind of see, oh, that's right. You're playing it for the first time. You don't understand these things. Let me tweak some things.
2: Yeah, new playtesters are definitely the uh, the the hot commodity of of playtesting. You always want to try and find people that have never played the game before, and ideally never played a game before, if you can find them, uh, because that's the gold standard. If if a non gamer can play your game and read the rulebook and and figure it out, um, and I think the real trouble is that a lot of designers don't have the you know either the money or the connections to hire people that haven't played board games before. Because <laughs> it's kind of tough in the circles we run in to find somebody these days that hasn't played a game. But, uh, but it's really invaluable to get non-gamers to read your rule book and to try and play a game and observe that.
0: Absolutely. Now, one thing you mentioned earlier was trying to make sure that new characters weren't making older characters obsolete. And, you know, the idea of basically power creep and as new factions, new you know, fighters come in that it's like, oh, well, this totally eliminates this other guy that I used to enjoy playing with, but now I can't win. And so how do you avoid the creep of all these new characters and make sure they still work with everything else?
2: Well, the best way I would say to avoid creeping in terms of power is to creep in terms of capability. You know, to create a character that not that doesn't just do something that's been done before differently but who does something that has never ever been done before and so constantly expanding the space of the design and that's one thing that I, I think that we've done really well you know you asked me earlier what are, what are you really proud of in your games I think that's the thing that I'm the most proud of in these games is that we've managed to create characters consistently that push the envelope of what a system will allow that that do something very different than what's been done previously so uh for example in in battlecon we developed a character you know it was like our 50th or 60th character and this character had a tech tree that they could walk down and unlock new powers and then uh, you know we developed another character who was able to you know trash her own cards permanently to get power buffs and nobody had done that before. And then we had a character who was able to create clones and place them all over the board, attack from every angle at once. And that was something that nobody else had tried yet. So creating, we um, us say, not just numeric space to expand, because numbers get, you know, when you, when you design new characters with new numbers, uh, numbers are not very interesting to players. They don't in, in inspire people. They don't show us anything new. They just push the envelope of, you know, of numbers. But in order to push the envelope of imagination, you have to create brand new mechanics and bring brand new styles of play to every single game and every single character. So, um, when we're designing a new character, we think about what is the what is this character supposed to be doing? You know, if they were in an anime, how would they explain their powers before they they beat you up, right? If it was a video game. Um, you know, how would it be a totally different game than the game previously? You know if this guy is is if this person is just playing Street Fighter, how can this be, person be playing civilization? and how can this person be playing checkers? <laughs> and how can we make all those characters compete against each other? And uh, that kind of expansive design space you know building is I think, what may, what keeps a game really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Is understanding that making characters different isn't just okay. This one has a plus three, where that one has a plus two. Like that's not super interesting, right? Right. Yeah. Tweaking some numbers,
2: and so. So the best way to get around power creep is to is to design creep instead.
0: (laughs) That's a great way to look at it. Now, when it comes to replayability, that's something that people talk about a lot. Uh, You know, oh, this game has a lot of replayability, or you know, once you played it once, you've played it a million times. It's the same game no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of games that. They they address this issue. I don't even know if it's an issue, but you know whatever they address this thing of replayability with basically just adding a lot of randomness. Oh, okay, uh, you can have we have double sided tiles, and so you can kind of randomly select, and it kind of gives you a, a, a different board state every time you begin the game. Or here's a, yeah. a couple of random cards to get added in, and so they they just introduce randomness to create replay, replayability. But what are your thoughts on replayability and like maybe some best practices on how to do it in interesting ways?
2: Yeah, well, I think that replayability really depends on the kind of game that you're going for, right? If you are working on something super simple, say like llamas, you know, replayability is, you know, is just with different people, right? Or code names, another great example. Like replayability is just different words with different people. That's fine. When you get into a deep strategy game, you're looking at a game like Argent, the Consortium, or um, you know Terra Mystica and Gaia Projects are, are great examples of the kind of uh, setup randomness that you described earlier. That's a game where we want to you know have a different experience because there are different parameters, but the engine is still basically the same. We're going to have to make different decisions, but we're not going to have to make different strategies. We're still selecting from the same pool of strategies, and I think an ideal game is um, is one where you actually have to invent new strategies because the game has has changed so drastically and this would be a game like you know like your asymmetric sides games like Twilight Imperium there's no way that you can play any race in that game like you could play another race in that game um, and so that's kind of what we try to do in in battlecon as well um, you know every game is is so different that you have to invent your own strategy Um But again, that comes from creating new mechanics. Because when you create new subsystems and new mechanics, they're going to interact with the existing subsystems and mechanics in unique ways. And though that crossbreeding creates new strategies inherently. So as 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 long as you are stretching your design space with each new faction or side or character that you create, you're going to force players to discover their own new strategies. Because there's no way to play against the thing that you've just seen the way that you've played against anything before. Those old strategies might inform your new one, but if the character is truly unique that you're playing against now, you'll have to do something different.
0: Yeah, and I believe Root is another great example of this. I mean, every character, every faction is not only different, but plays completely different, totally different mechanisms, totally Mm -hmm. different ways to score points and move armies and do different things. Like, to the point where you're basically learning a totally different game when you're playing a different...
2: Action. Yeah, and that's and Root is a great example for a game where the you know the the first game experience um, you know is 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 extremely important. You know, it's very important that with Root you play the recommended first game <laughs> before you go on to anything else because it's it's quite difficult to explain to a player that's never played uh, the game before. Not even any game. Just like if you haven't played this game, Root is tough to figure out. Uh, well, actually, more um, the uh, oh gosh, I'm thinking of the one before it, the uh, the cave, um, Crystal Caverns. Mm-hmm. That's the one I'm, I'm really thinking of. Root is a lot more streamlined than Crystal Caverns was, but um, but I think Crystal Caverns was a lot more daring.
0: It's <laughs> a good way to look at it. Now you design a lot of games that can be played in tournaments, and so what are what are you thinking about designing for that situation? Because that's very different than just designing a game for people to enjoy at their house. Now now you're putting tournament play into it, which is something else to kind of put on top of the design space. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, with tournament play, you really do need to have more robust balancing and, you know, having those systems in place where you know what it, what the balance of a, of a thing is, is really going to help. Um, the tournament, I think, is kind of a natural, a natural extension of the core mission of the game, where we want a game to be played a hundred times Well, the only way that you're going to have interesting matches on your hundredth game is if you meet somebody else who's played a hundred games, right? Like players have to achieve mastery together or as a community or else there's nobody really to share in the joy of mastery for the game. So a big part of creating a game that is going to last is also creating a community around that game. And that's something that we really strive to do with our online communities is give players a place to, to play the game, a place to explore and tinker with the game a place to really become good at the game together and enjoy the fruits of that labor together.
0: Yeah, I think that's super important for these kinds of games is basically creating a really good meta community, right? Where people can come in and talk about different strategies, different ideas. And maybe they've got a friend that's using this one character and is like, oh, I just can't figure out how to beat them. And, and you guys have any ideas? And, and just kind of create this really cool community around the game because again that's going to make it last a whole lot longer because people feel linked to the game they feel tied to it it's not just a game that they play it's now part of their lifestyle and i think that's so important for for games that are going to last is basically creating this uh culture around the game
2: Mm -hmm. absolutely and it's always it's extremely interesting when new players come into the community and they've come from a different meta and they have different ideas of what's good and what's not and, you know, whether those ideas survive the crucible of the, you know, of the greater communities uh, prodding is always really interesting. We've had outside metas come in and really dominate our, our own, you know, like core community meta. And it's always been really interesting to watch. It's kind of, you know, this Petri dish of strategy and some, some elements really do rise to the top and take over.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, one thing I want to circle back around to that I'm, I'm really interested in, how, how do you do this? Like, tell me the design process, design theory ideas that you have is the whole idea that you can create a game that can be played super simply the first time, but then the more you learn the game, the more you understand how it works and different characters or factions, whatever, the more depth just flows out of the game. So like, how do you, how do, you do that? Again, going back like one-on-one class, like help me understand creating depth for a game that's not just automatically deep right out of the box, like oh, this is a really deep game. It's like no, it's it's as deep as you want to basically dive down. Like, how do you do that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the holy grail, isn't it? It's it's a difficult thing to explain how to make how to make a game like that. I'd say that design a game that you are going to want to play a hundred times, and then trust that there are enough people out there like you that they'll want to play it for a hundred times. And I think that that's, that's really the formula is to pursue what it is that you love. I thought that I would want to play a game like Battlecon a hundred times. And so I built it and I discovered that there's a whole community of people out there that want to achieve mastery, right? To, to play this game and understand every single in and out of it and to become real masters of the game. And that that was a really cool revelation. Not just as a designer, not just as a publisher, but personally, that there were so many people who shared the same uh, the same drive to master a game as me. So I think mean, if you want to make a game that's like that, I'd say play build the game that you want to play first and foremost, and then you know put in everything that you that you think that you could possibly want in it. Uh, maybe that's a bit more a bit more pie in the sky <laughs> and less concrete than, uh, than you really wanted to hear. But that would be my, my starting advice.
0: No, I like it. And I also think it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with mechanisms. Uh, designing a game that has a really good, solid core system that then also offers itself up to be manipulated and changed and added to and taken away. And I think that's a place where it starts, right? Because then you can add in depth by adding in different things
2: for sure the second like i guess the more down to earth way to say that would be also understand your design space points right what are the what are the touch points where you can pin new things onto the system and you want to understand those very explicitly right from the beginning what are the levers that i can pull and are there enough levers that i can create new content and that i can create interesting content over and over and over again because like we were talking about earlier with numbers when you make a game that's number-based, there's an infinite number of cards you can make because there's an infinite number of numbers that you can put onto cards. But that's not interesting. right? What actually is interesting in the game? And find, find the fun, right? find the interesting spot, and then cut and cut and cut and cut until only the fun part and the interesting part remains. And if that's too small for a game, then make another one. <laughs> And then cut and cut and cut and cut until you find the fun there. And then keep blobbing together that fun until you have a game that's nothing but fun bits. And once you have all the fun bits, and it's big enough to make a game, and it's got tons of little spots for expansion and divergence and all these cool, unique levers, then you can take that and use it as the core for the game you're actually going to make at the end, which will be the one with the final different characters and sides and powers and mechanics.
0: Yeah, it's just that easy, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> All right, switching back over to the publishing side of things, what are some other things to be thinking about? Like if I'm going to run a Kickstarter, I'm getting into the publishing business, I've got a game I think lends itself to having lots of factions, lots of replayability, lots of character, whatever. What are the things I need to be thinking about? We already talked about you know, kind of making sure that your expansions have a similar number of cards or similar box size things like that. Any other things to be thinking about from a publishing standpoint for these kinds of games?
2: Well, you really want to think about the um, how you're going to explain what is in the box. Right? Um, it's not enough to know what's in the box and to make a standard size box, but how am I going to, you know, show this box to somebody who's got the base game and inspire them to? understand what it is and why it's great. And this is something that we ran into with um you know with Battlecon uh the later expansions like Fate and Wanderers and Trials. Um you know like here's a box and there's 10 new characters in it and a player is like well I've already got 50 50 characters why do I want 10 more? And you know you have to have something that is a unique hook for that game right and with wanderers we said well here's a, an expansion that was designed by fans for fans this is something that members of our community pitched in to create all these characters with us and so that's a really cool hook we can see what's going on in the minds of our fans um whereas with if we just say hey this is 10 new characters which is kind of what we did for fate we won't have such a great result so It's not enough to just have more content, but you want to have a theme that binds that content together that's easy to explain, and it's easy to share with the audience. You want to be able to explain your game and your expansion in just a few sentences.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. I heard a comedian uh, the other day, and he was actually talking about big business and corporations and monopolies and whatnot, but he said, if you can't explain what your company does in one sentence, then your company should be illegal. And he was really frustrated about how many you know mergers and all these different things. And uh, but I think maybe it's the same for uh, for your game. Like you need to be able to explain what this new expansion does, what these new factions do, really simply. Uh, otherwise, maybe you need to cut them out. Maybe you need to turn into two or three different
2: uh, or something like that. Or or just boil down your core idea, right? Like like there's a lot of games that we did earlier that could have been made simple, but we made them more complex because we thought you know complex is deep. And players will want to see that we've put a lot of thought into this, Um, you know, but that's like having a business card that, you know, that folds out into a giant scroll, right? You need to be able to convey your idea in instantly. And the more that I, that I'm in this industry as a publisher, the more that I I feel the old adage is true. Simplicity is sophistication. And when I put up a graphic, I want that graphic to explain exactly what I'm doing here. You know, here's what it is. Here's why you want it. Here's how you get it. As 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 clearly, you know, like in that. Uh, oh gosh, I'm, I'm thinking of like the uh, this kind of karmic wheel, where, you know, as as the, the tighter and closer and more atomic that things get, the the better, uh, the better it is. I don't know if there's a name for that, but you could kind of imagine that image where you have, you know, three, four, five ideas and they spin and spin and spin until they've all become one picture, one single ring. And that ring is, is the, you know, is understanding.
0: Right. And you, you just said something I think is really profound and that's complexity is not depth. Right? don't confuse complexity that your game is kind of difficult to understand and difficult to figure out, and it's got all these different moving parts, whatever, whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a deep game or an interesting
2: game or a unique game, right? And that's another trap too, is that when you when you put a lot of words on, you can talk about how the game is totally unique and different than anything that's come before. But I would say that it's not as important as you might think to be unique. You. You don't need to... When you're making a deck builder, you don't have to explain why the deck builder is different than Dominion. What you need to explain is why people want to play this game more than Dominion. And often, you know, the theme or the hook can, is enough for that. You know, if I say, well, you could play Dominion, but you could also play this similar game with superheroes. If I'm into superheroes, that's going to inspire me. I'm going to want to play the second game instead of Dominion. You know, that's That's fine. That's enough. And I think a lot of our as, as designers, we need to set ourselves apart somehow. But it's not that necessary. Sometimes the theme is enough to set you apart. Sometimes the hook is enough to set you apart. And the point is inspiring people to play the game, not selling selling the game on some unique, intangible differentness.
0: Absolutely, that's a great point. Well, Brad, this has been awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to leave listeners with? You know, they're, they're sitting there listening to this. They're trying to figure out, how do I design a game that lasts? What would you tell them?
2: I would say that the the most important thing is to design a game that you and your friends want to play over and over and over again. And, you know, let the, the rest take care of itself. That's if you're a designer. If you're a publisher, I would say look at trends, study relentlessly, figure out what is working and what is not. And try to capture those mechanics scientifically in your project. Um, and then, you know as an artist, I guess I'd say follow follow your own path and, uh, and try to make try to try to really understand what the dream is. What do you not just what do you want to make, but why do you want to make it and see if uh, if what you plan to create is going to take you down the path you want to walk.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that one.
2: Yeah, well, uh, this is a Level 99 game, but it's not a design of mine. Uh, it's a design of Joshua Van Lanningham, who um, I guess I guess I could I could I could uh, you know raise my head up. I could say he's my protege. But Josh uh, has worked with Level 99 games for about seven years now and has led a lot of our projects. This is his first from scratch design that he's created. Uh, it's a really incredible game. It's called Bullet. It is a shoot'em up puzzle action game. And so if you ever played all of the old um, shoot'em up games, these are you know the games like like Ikaruga or the Toho series or um, you know all of those uh, space shooter type of games. Um, he wanted to create a board game that encapsulated what he loved about those games. And the final result of all that work is Bullet, and he's written a whole blog series about it. You can read about all the different versions that we went through, and the uh, <laughs> the road that we walked to achieve the final game. But it's it's a really incredible game, and I think it is a game that will last. We we're already planning a lot of future, uh, a big future for Bullet. So I think it's going to be a great, uh, great experience
0: very cool well good luck with bullet and all the other uh, games that you just continue to to put out just amazing expansions and amazing new games over at level 99 and uh really appreciate your time appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on right now
2: thank you for having me gabe it's been a great time and uh i look forward to hanging out with you later
1: thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing